Good morning. All right, this is a survey, and you have to tell the truth in your own heart. How many of you wanted to tell Ron, don't cook your meat quite so long that it's tough and you've got to sharpen your knife, right? <laughs> We're going to study Psalm 95 together today. That didn't have much to do with anything, but anyway. We're going to look at Psalm 95. I invite you to turn in your Bible to that passage today. We're going to start our series on Daniel on January the 31st. But before we do, I wanted us to focus our attention on the grand purpose of our lives, and that is worship. There are dozens and dozens of places where we're called to worship in the Scriptures, and yet Psalm 95 opens up exactly what God means by that. He invites us to belief and He invites us to rest, to experience afresh the work of God as we worship the Lord of salvation. So let's focus our attention on Psalm 95, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are His also. The sea is His, for He made it, and His hands formed the dry land. O come, Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof that they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation and said, They are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Let's pray together. Father, we ask as we read your word that you would open the eyes of our hearts, not only to see the truth, but may you move our lives to change according to the truth. Enable us to worship by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' strong and mighty name we ask it. Amen. Well, where do you go for rest? For rest. Some of us are extroverts, and in order to rest, we go find lots of people. We go find people who, are, who can recharge us and spend time with us, and we feel rested when we're with others. But some are introverts who retreat to a quiet spot and maybe listen to music or a book or even just silence in order to be renewed and refreshed. But the Bible calls us to another dimension of rest that that goes beyond personality. It calls us to a place where we are given over to rest, and that place is worship. Where we, as the gathered people of God, come together to celebrate with one another what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's truly in worship that we find our rest, because it is in worship of the Lord that we again hear that wonderful story of what God has done for us that we could never do for ourselves. He calls us to rest in His work of salvation. But what might it look like? What does it look like for us to bring our hearts to worship? What is our the posture of our lives to be as we come together with His congregation, with His people, in order to worship? Well, Psalm 95 has some advice for us as to what it looks like 
to bring our hearts and bring our lives to worship. And the first piece it has for us is we are to be aware of the audience of one. Whenever we come into a worship service, we are aware that our audience of worship is one, and it is the Lord God. But be honest for just a moment. Often when it comes right down to it, don't we worship for one another? Don't we sing for one another, hoping to impress each other? Don't we dress for one another? Don't we seek to see and be seen as we come to worship? And oftentimes we bring cold hearts that that fret over personal preference, as if the audience of worship is whatever style preference I have as I come to worship. We can tend to be consumers of worship or of worship styles rather than realize we're coming to an audience of one. But our psalm makes very plain that although we are aware of each other in worship and we even call to one another in the psalms in worship, the audience of worship is one. Look again at verse 1. O come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into His presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to Him with songs. You see, our audience for worship is an audience of one, and it is the Lord God. As we unite our voices, unite our lives before Him, and we speak to Him as one person, as the body of Christ. He is the audience of our worship. Now, practically speaking, this should adjust the way that we enter into and participate in a worship service. Now, as wonderful as our choir is, The choir is not here to perform for us. For you, the congregation, are the chief choir in worship. And whenever the chancel choir leads us and sings, we are called to join our hearts to their expressions and their sentiments of our worship. We join our hearts to them as they sing on our behalf. We are praising as the choir takes our hearts and our intentions and forms them to a song spoken to the Lord. That's part of the reason that we don't clap or applause when the choir does so well here. It's because the choir isn't performing for us. But rather, they're gathering up our prayers. They're gathering up our heart's desires and they are singing them to the Lord. And we join our voices to them, join our hearts to their voices as God is the audience. Whenever we sing, it's simply a way of doing other things that we do in worship. In song, we teach, we pray, we praise, we honor the Lord, and we speak to God with one voice as His one people. It's also the reason that we have the liturgists pray together, the the pastoral prayer, the Lord's Prayer. It's as though God is seated on the front pew here, hearing our concerns, our burdens of heart that the pastor draws up together and speaks with one voice, the voice of you, the voice of the congregation, given to the Lord. We address Him in worship. We speak to Him with one voice as we come together in worship. We have to realize that worship is an act of faith. And it calls us to believe that there is more going on here, there's more happening in this room than we can see with our naked eye in the moment. God is actually here. God is genuinely interested in what we have to say about Him. He's interested in how we express our love for Him. He's interested in what is on our hearts as His people. And He is here with us, even right now, as we're worshiping. One pastor put it this way. When we leave worship, 
we should first ask not, what did I get out of it? But rather, how did I do in my work of honoring the Lord? Maybe we should make it plural. How did we do in our work of honoring the Lord? We gather together in worship. We are gathered as one people, one body of Christ, speaking with a voice to the one God who reigns above. But not only is God the audience of our worship, but also the psalm tells us that we actually worship in the presence of God. Look again at verse 2. The psalmist says, We come into His presence with thanksgiving. Now the Hebrew of that verse is fairly graphic. It literally says something more like this. Let us approach His face with thanksgiving. Let us approach His face with With thanksgiving. Now that is an incredible thought. That we are invited to approach the face of God when we come together in worship. Now it's true that as Christian people, all of life is an expression of worship. And it's also true that we have fellowship with Him whenever we do our private Bible reading, our private devotions and our family devotions. But whenever we meet together as God's people on this His day of worship, in His presence, something special happens. On this day, at this time, when He's here in a unique way, God has a special business with us as His people. We come to an incredible intimacy. We come face to face. We approach the very presence of God when we come together in worship. We are face to face with our Creator, with our Redeemer, He says. Now, on the one hand, that could be terrifying, right? To approach the face of God perfection, the face of an absolutely and all-perfect God, all full of holiness, we could pile high the shame and the clear-eyed truth that we don't belong in His presence. We will never be enough. We will never measure up enough to merit being before the face of a perfect and all-powerful Creator. And yet He calls us. And He invites us to come to approach His face and stand before Him in intimacy and in relationship. It's true that we will never be enough. It's true that we will never measure up in ourselves. And yet God calls us close. He draws us to His very face that we might worship in intimacy and in relationship. But the fact that we will never be enough doesn't stop us from trying all sorts of ways to feel like we are enough, does it? We use all sorts of things, any number of strategies to cover over our feelings of not being enough in this world, to distract us from that feeling of being deficient, that that shame that says, I'll never be enough, I'll never measure up. When we come before the face of a perfect God or even when we simply come before the face of one another, someone whom we assume is better than us, In some sense, we, in our shame, seek to cover over that feeling of not being enough. Jim Carrey, the actor, funny man, gave one of the most insightful speeches I've ever heard him give at the Golden Globe Awards last week. I don't know if you had the opportunity to hear it. But he was there to present the award for the best musical or best comedy. And in what was his first appearance since his girlfriend took her own life four months ago, He had been in hiding. He had been sequestered from all of the public for four months. And here was his time to come out. And it's very clear. I'm not sure what was going on in Jim Carrey's heart, but the man is searching. And he's searching deeply. 
He was introduced as he walked out on the stage as two-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey, as if that two-time Golden Globe award-winning was the adjective that describes or defines who Jim Carrey is as a person. And as he walked out, you could tell that it bothered him. It really bothered him that he was reduced as a person to such an achievement. And he decided, it seems, in an impromptu speech there to ridicule that, that sentiment that his life could be reduced to winning a couple of awards. So as Carrie stepped up to the microphone that night, he repeated that phrase in an amusing sort of way with a wry smile. He said, thank you. I am two-time Golden Globe award-winning Jim Carrey. And he continued, You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just some guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe award winner Jim Carrey (laughs) going to get some well-deserved shut-eye. And he said, When I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe award-winning actor, Jim Carrey. And he paused for dramatic effect. And he said, because then I would be enough. Because then I would be enough and it would be true, he said. And then I could stop this terrible search for what I ultimately know will never fulfill me. What an incredible moment of awareness. That all of what this gathered audience of Hollywood lives for, it all amounts to nothing and it will never fulfill them. What was he saying in that moment? I don't know where Jim Carrey is spiritually, but it seems as though he put his finger on an essential aspect of worship. And what I mean by that is this. Worship includes an aspect of before whose face do we live? In whose view, for whose benefit, in whose sight are we living our lives? And answering that question tells us a lot about whom or what we truly worship. Because what he pointed out in that room is Hollywood lives for our faces. Hollywood lives for the public. They live as if they're validated. If they win awards, then in some sense they could see it as fulfillment, a a validation. It gives them a meaning to life. I have to achieve this next level of reward, this next level of success and appreciation, and then I'll be enough, he mocked. Having the approval of the one before whose face I live drives and shapes their lives. It drives and shapes our lives too. Our English word, worship, comes from the old English, worth-ship. And that word means to examine something and determine what kind of value it has, what sort of worth it has. And then it takes another step. It further means if I have this thing that's valuable, then I have value and I have worth too. Holding on to this thing that I think has meaning lends significance to our lives, we believe. And it begins to shape our lives around whomever and whatever we believe gives us worthship. And in that sense, whatever we worship, whatever we ascribe worship to becomes the center of our lives. And it it begins to transform us as we more and more live to acquire that object that makes us worthy. That's what we worship. I wonder what fits in that category for you and for me. What is it that fits in that blank? If I have this, then I'm worth something. 
I have this achievement or this character trait or this blessing or this material worth. If I have this, then I'm worth something. Whatever fits in that blank will be that which you give your heart to. It will be that which you give your effort to. You will see it dominate what you do. It will dictate how you spend your hours. It will dominate over what occupies your dreams. That blank will be the thing that you hold on to because you can't simply bear to give it up. Because if you give it up, your life means something less. You become devastated. It's in that blank for you. If I have this, then I'm worth something. Answering that question effectively tells us before whose face we're living. I wonder if it's reputation. Is it approval or applause over some sort of success? If it is, then that quest for success will become the organizing principle for your whole life. The thing which you arrange everything else around that quest for success. It might cost you something. It might cost you your family. But so what? I work hard and and be away so much that I sacrifice my relationship with my spouse or my kids. At least I have that thing. At least I have that thing that gives me a sense of worth-ship. Perhaps you are living your life to be that three-time Golden Globe Award winner. Living for the next contract. Living for the next success. Living for the next sales award. Because somewhere deep down you believe, then I'll be enough. I can put away that nagging sense of never measuring up. Never being able to achieve enough that I can finally rest in being enough. Or at least that's the lie we tell ourselves. Perhaps for you it's not reputation or approval. Perhaps it's health. I'm strong and I can take care of myself. And if I have health, then then my life feels worth living. Like I'm a valuable contributor to my family and to society. But if having good health is the object of your worth-ship, then what happens when it's lost? Your whole world begins to crumble and everything feels like it's falling apart and you begin to think in your mind, I can't do this anymore, I can't do that anymore. I even wonder why I'm here. I'm no good to anybody. Health has become your object of worth-ship. Perhaps it's, it's close cousin, comfort. If I feel comfortable, then I'm worth it. If I feel comfortable, if I'm able to make myself comfortable, then I'm valuable. I've finally arrived. Or maybe it's power for you. If I have the power to make decisions and control outcomes, then I'm valuable. Then I mean something in this world. But if you worship power, then keeping power will dominate your life. You'll never be able to give yourself away, to serve humbly, to bend your will to someone else. But instead, you will become increasingly more of a demanding person who dictates that my wishes must be heeded. And if not, you're going to pay a price. Power is our worth-ship. We begin to drive the people around us away. At least those who won't bow the knee to us. Maybe it's not any of those things. Perhaps it's who we know. I'm valued and important because of who I know and to whom I'm connected. I know the right people. Or perhaps it's living in the O3. I'm worth something because I have the right address and all you other suckers don't. 
Or perhaps it's the color of your skin on this Martin Luther King weekend. I matter. I'm valuable. I have privileges in this world because I'm white. Perhaps it's education level or political party or whatever measure you want to put in that blank and that we think makes our lives count. What is it? Whatever you put in that blank becomes the center of your life and because whatever you treasure, that's the thing you will worship. And our lives are transformed by whatever we sense gives us worth-ship. What is it for you? And what does the psalm say about worth-ship? Well, instead of terror that could fill us when approaching the face of an all-powerful and, and completely perfect holy God, when we approach His face, we come before Him, verse 2, with thanksgiving. Is that not incredible? We come before the face of the Holy One who could zap us with one word, and yet we come not in fear, we come with thanksgiving. Why? Verse 7, For He is our God, and we are the people of His pasture, and the sheep of His hand. Our worship, friends, comes because we belong to God. Because He made us in verse 6, and He's redeemed us in verse 7. He created us in His own image to have relationship with Him, being like Him, made for intimacy and connection and friendship. And it gives us the dignity that we celebrate on the Sanctity of Life Sunday. Each one of us are filled with dignity, amazing dignity, because God made us like Him. He made us to be in relationship with Him. He made us to be creatures that stand face to face with our Creator. It's incredible. It's, it's amazing that He made us that way, and yet He didn't leave us there. We have fallen in sin and rebellion, and yet He redeemed us. He bought us back at the cost of His own Son, the Lord Jesus Christ giving His blood, and we celebrate that every Sunday. We celebrate that God has made a covenant with us that's a bond of life and death, a bond of blood, that He belongs to us. He is our God. Amazing and condescending grace that is, a a favor that is completely undeserved. For us to be able to say of the Creator of the universe who spoke everything into existence that we could say He is our God. He belongs to us. Isn't that not amazing? And the further thing to say, and we belong to Him. We are the sheep of of His pasture. From His hand comes all that we need, all the supply, our guidance, our His grace, life. Everything comes from Him and He takes it one step further even. We are the sheep of His hand. Think of that image. What the psalmist is saying here is that you, sinner as you are, rest in the palm of the tender hand of God. You are the sheep of His hand. You rest in His palm and He assures you of His love. He arranges life tenderly to care for you and to care for me. God cares for us so much that we can rest in His palm without fear. Because Jesus went to the cross for us. Is there anything else in life that you can dream of that makes you count other than being in the palm of our Creator and our Redeemer. 
can anything else I could say about you, whatever award you want to put up against that one, I'll go with being in the palm of my Creator and my Redeemer. Is there anything else that He could say over you that would make your life enough? That would make your life meaningful? That would prove to you that you matter? Other than I am yours and you are mine and you rest in the palm of my hand. And yet we know the cost of that intimacy for that belonging to God, for that, that cost of that worship that belongs to us. The cost was the very blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Good Shepherd. He gave His life on the cross for sheep like us to make us His. He's our Maker. He's our Redeemer. And He calls us close. He calls us to His face so that He Himself is able to wash away our guilt and speak tenderly to us in our shame. When we feel like I'm not enough. I have no right to be before your face. Holy God, he says, you are the sheep of my pasture. And you are the sheep of my hand. He calls to us to comfort us and care for us. Even to the life of his own son. Giving his son, the Lord Jesus, in exchange for you. And if he's willing to do that. Is there anything that you truly need that He will withhold from you? I wonder what goes in the blank for you and for me. If I have this, then my life counts. What the psalmist says is what goes in the blank is that I belong to God. He's my maker. He's my redeemer. And it can never be taken away from me because I didn't earn it to begin with. It's all a gift of His grace. It's all an unmerited favor given to you and to me. He looked upon us in our lost estate being ruined with our sin. And instead of tossing us onto the heap for judgment, He has given you His love and His fellowship and His friendship and His reconciliation. And He calls you mine. And he says, you can call me yours. That gives us worship in this life. What makes you enough? It's not success at work. Winning that next contract because that can be lost. It's not health. Health can be lost. It's not comfort because comfort can be frittered away. It isn't approval or applause which can be certainly lost from others. But rather what goes in that blank is God has given Himself to us as a gift to say, I am enough and you can never lose me. Amen. His love proves to us on the cross that He died in our place. To forgive our sin and remove that shame of feeling like we don't measure up. And he says, this is your enough. I am your enough. And I give you your worship. And friends, that's how we come before his face with thanksgiving. Because he welcomes us in love and in tenderness and in grace. We worship and we can truly rest. We can exhale from all the achieving and the posing and the pretending and truly rest in a blessing that we didn't have to deserve. But He gave it to us because of who He is. 
We come to worship each week and we approach the very face of God. And finally, from our text, as we come to worship, we have to realize that we come to participate in a dialogue with God. Every week we come and we rehearse this same story once more that, and we examine our lives in light of this story of the gospel and we respond to it afresh. Do you notice the flow of Psalm 95? It starts with praise and then confession and then hearing and responding to God's Word. That's the flow of our worship service here at Rivermont. You could follow it down in our bulletin. That's what worship looks like. It's a dialogue with God. As He speaks to us, He calls us into worship, and then we respond back to Him in praise. It's a dialogue of that renewal of relationship, the renewal of the covenant, re-experiencing the story that gives our lives meaning every week. That's what worship is. It's structured as a conversation with God where He calls to us and we respond in praise in verses 2 through 5. And then we confess before Him our sin and our shortcomings and He assures us of His grace. We kneel in confession and surrender, verse 6. Because when we come before the Lord, it's, it's not a time to negotiate. It's not a time to argue with Him as if this is a discussion between equals. But instead we say, God, I've offended you and I'm yours. I bow my knee in submission to you that you would form me in the truth. And then in verse 7, he assures us of his grace again. We are his people. He has bought us by the blood of the lamb and we praise him. Then in verse 8, he speaks to us through the word and we hear his voice, which not only shows us our sin, but invites us to rest. But we're called to a hearing and a response that's better than that, as the psalmist says in Meribah and Massa. It's a story from Exodus chapter 17 where God's people heard His voice call to them and received the gifts of manna and quail and water in the desert. But instead of receiving that gift with a thankful heart, as verse 9 indicates, they judged God as insufficient. You're holding out on me. What you have to give to me is not enough. And so they received His gifts, they received His grace with cold and hard hearts. But God says to us here, He calls us to a better response. Today, He says, today when you hear His voice, today when you are called in His grace to receive His provision, rest. Rest in His blessing. Rest in His undeserved favor given to you and to me. How? How do we do it? Well, we stop. We stop trying to use our own hands to provide what we need in this life. We stop trying to measure our sense of meaning by what we produce for ourselves. We stop arguing with God about His gifts and His grace given to us. We start listening to God and responding to His undeserved favor with thankful hearts. The gift of salvation given to you and to me and we receive it with open hands rather than with clenched fists ready to fight because, God, you haven't given me what I need and what I want. Dan Allender, a theologian and wonderful counselor, once wrote this. The cost of receiving God's grace is nothing. And there can be no higher price to pay for an arrogant people. Isn't that true of me? Perhaps it's true of you. The highest price we can ever think of paying 
is our ability to say, I didn't earn it, and I can give you nothing back for it. It's simply all of grace. Because the achieving and the seeking to measure up and making sure that we are enough to other people, it's all a means of trying to prove our worth. And yet God says, in my grace, I give you the gift of your worth. And it is that you belong to me. I am your maker and I am your redeemer. And friends, that's where true rest can be found. Whenever we come to worship, we come to hear and to participate and to believe that dialogue once more that God calls and loves and delights in giving good gifts to sinners like us. And I don't know about you, but I need to be reminded of that every single week because my heart is so forgetful in arrogance. My heart is so easy by Wednesday of the week to believe that all the blessings I have in my life, I've worked hard to get them, and if I work hard, I can keep them. But we come back again on Sunday and believe and confess and rest in the truth that God is the one who calls us to His face, pours out lavish blessings upon us and calls us His own. We come to worship, to participate in and hear that story again and again and again. And friends, that's where you'll find true rest for your soul. When you can say, God, you are enough. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by your spirit, you don't toss us out. You don't give up on us when we... So easily, in the minutes from leaving this worship service, we will leave and return to our desire to achieve and make ourselves enough and compare ourselves to one another so that we feel on top of the heap. And yet, Lord, we come to confess we know it won't work. We know it will never last. We know that we will never measure up on our own. And we confess that You are enough. Your gifts and Your grace and Your promise and blessing of life to us, that is enough. And we confess that we have meaning irrespective of our achievements. And so we ask, Lord, that as we come together as Your people, may we tell that story one to another today. May we remind one another that we count, we matter, not because of our achievement or not because of any thing we've earned, not even because of our skin color or our achievements or anything else, but we matter because we belong to you. Help us to believe it and help us to look at one another that way as well. We thank you, Lord God, that we are a people who belong, belong to you and belong to one another. In Christ's name we ask it. Amen.